All right, welcome into this episode of The Breakout where we're going to be digging into the running back class of 2022. And I'm going to be bringing on a special guest, my friend here, Tarek. Welcome to the show. Hey, Abby. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. Yeah, man. I'm super excited that you're going to be on today to talk to us about how you evaluate these running back prospects. Um, you know, we're, we're just hitting uh, post-Super Bowl season. Uh, I, as a Bengals fan, am ready to move on to the draft. Um, I'm, my, my soul hurts a lot. I'm sorry, um, man. But, uh, you know, I'm... I'm really excited to introduce you to everyone who watches The Breakout because we've known each other for almost two years now, and we've been playing in Dynasty Leagues um, for uh, one year at this point uh, together. And so I'd love for you to kind of give the audience some context as to who you are, um, what's your entry into the Dynasty space, um, and how you know, you've got, gotten interested in all of this content. Yeah, sure, man. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, we've been in that... Uh breakout show league together and it's been among my favorite leagues because you know it's really competitive and it's difficult but also it's actually the only league that i have a co-manager in um mitch my friend who is on my podcast the long game uh you know we manage that team together and we have such completely different processes and i think it kind of evens each other out to a certain extent so i really enjoy being a part of that league and even though i think my incessant uh trade offers might uh bother some people but you know that's how i play so that's how i play dynasty my entry into dynasty i mean just a natural progression you know from redraft to dynasty i think i wanted to find a way to scratch that itch in the off season so the same group of guys that I played redraft with uh, about five years ago started the dynasty league. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm in six leagues now. I, I, I think I'll top out about 10. Uh, I want to have enough leagues to where I can kind of diversify a bit and where I'm kind of exposed to different players and managers, but not so much to where I don't really care about certain teams. But yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, I have, the long game dynasty podcast uh i call it tlg so we've been doing that for almost a year now me and uh three of my buddies so yeah four of us just been playing dynasty together since high school you know i'm i'm 32 now so better part of two decades and we started a dynasty league and after three or four years we just wanted to start a forum to talk about it um discuss strategy and players you know so uh, I think, yeah, natural progression. Most people, I think, start out in a redraft and then find their way into Dynasty. And when you've been like making your podcast, uh, what is kind of the area that you guys drill into the most? Like, what's your speciality? Yeah, I think we, well, first off, it's because we've known each other for so long, it's a really like laid back and fun environment and friend driven, right? And we also, you know, we, we kind of, uh, have potty mouths. So we're, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little bit of just like a chill environment. Um, but in terms of the actual analysis, I think we try to focus on both player analysis and dynasty strategy, right? I think mm -hmm. right now when, you know, we're kind of in prospecting season and also reviewing the 2021 class, there's a lot of player analysis, right? Um, but when you get deeper into the off season and you get into the in-season grind, a lot of trade strategy, a lot of roster construction strategy, a lot of game theory. Um, so we kind of straddle between those two things, player analysis and, and strategy. Got it. Yeah. And I think that's a really important call out because, you know, for people who don't 
play Dynasty uh, or even don't play fantasy football. Dynasty is just kind of like fantasy football on steroids. You're owning teams, uh, you have a bunch of players, you have draft picks, and you have to manage your rosters um, over time. You have to make sure that you're, uh, you know, keeping your team in a championship window, or if you're not there, you have to rebuild. And so it's not just as simple as, you know, Jonathan Taylor is the best running back, so you should go get him. It's well, should I keep Jonathan Taylor if that means that in return I'm going to get five first-round draft picks, and that means that by you know a year or two from now I'm going to have this awesome juggernaut of a team? Um, and so I think it's really really cool that you're calling out that you know you need not just the player evaluation, but you also need to be able to understand the context of your league economy, uh, the game theory of you know how players are viewed and how the market evaluates those players, and then what you should be doing in order to navigate those really really you know, changing currents, um, in the dynasty space. Yeah. One thing that we're trying to get away from in dynasty, uh, is the randomness of redraft, right? So obviously dynasty is a game of random outcomes as well. Like I'm not going to say if you build a great team, you're going to have a 90% chance of taking home a championship, but dynasty does give you the option to where year over year, you can build a sustainable team that can be intensely competitive year in and year out. And sometimes in redraft, you know, you catch a couple bad beats and it's over. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of another layer in terms of why strategy and game theory is important because ultimately you don't just want to kind of play the middle and and maybe compete each year. You want to build a really sustainably good team. And that, you know, that's something that, uh, with work, with some grind, you can, you can achieve in, in any league. Right. Yeah. And I definitely think that one underrated component of Dynasty is the fact that for a lot of us like football junkies, uh, a lot of times we're looking at our own respective teams and we're like, why the hell did they draft this player? Or why didn't they invest in this area? Or if I was the GM, I would do this. And the beautiful part about Dynasty is, well, now you're the GM and you're accountable for, you know, reaching for Clyde Edwards Hilaire, uh, you know, in in over Jonathan Taylor and right. over DeAndre Swift and whatnot. Um, and so if, you know, for the people that are watching, if you don't play Dynasty and, you know, all of those things kind of ring a bell for you, uh, I really recommend trying it out. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, we're going to be opening some more Dynasty leagues for the breakout over the coming years as well. So uh, hit me up on Twitter um, if, if you're interested in that and uh you know just looking to build that community for sure now Tarek, I want to understand how you evaluate players. Sure. Um, in this space, people evaluate players in a quadrillion different ways. Some people build their entire brand off of the fact that I played football in middle school. And other players are like, well, I'm a PhD statistician. Uh, where do you come from? What's your background? How, how do you look at things? Well, I did not play football in middle school. Actually, I went to one practice and I got hit once. Uh, and that was that. I, I decided that <laughs> soccer and basketball were what I was going to play. But um, yeah, in terms of player evaluation, I think I'm primarily data focused, you know, so I try to find the metrics depending on position that are the most sticky and and thus the most predictive of success and build opinions around those metrics. Um, But I do think film and player talent evaluation is an important input. So I formulate my own opinions based on my own film watching, but more than that, I think I defer to film guys who I trust. So among them, Chris Harris, 
Brandon Lejeune, uh, Ray GQ, Alfredo Brown from Pretend GM is a really great scout who we play fantasy with. Uh, Jetpack, yeah, exactly. Jetpack Galileo, Angelo. There's a lot of really smart film guys out there. So if if my evaluation of a player, both from a data standpoint and from my own kind of tape study matches with them, I kind of know that I'm on the right track. And I think another thing is, is I'm not afraid of narratives, right? And I specifically say the word narrative um, because it's kind of a dirty word in Dynasty. Uh, and you mentioned uh, PhD statisticians. I'm actually a humanities PhD. Uh, so I'm working on my dissertation in performance studies. So I kind of traffic in narratives, right? Um, but, you know, all narratives are is their rhetorical context, right? They're assigning context to a specific opinion that serves an argumentative purpose, right? Um, so, you know, if you think about a, a rookie receiver coming in, Garrett Wilson, for instance, he's a player I'm really high on, even though from an analytic perspective, his market share of receiving yards isn't necessarily hitting benchmarks that we'd wanna see coming off of his junior year, but understanding the narrative, right? That he's sharing the field with two other potential first round receivers and Olavi and Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know, some might call that context, right? I call it a narrative and it's convincing to me. So I think kind of one of my primary missions in the dynasty space is to reclaim the legitimacy of narratives as dynasty analysis you know there's not enough humanities guys and artists in this space so yep. um i and you know we've talked about this a little bit already but i think strategy is probably the biggest place to build the biggest edge as a dynasty player a little bit over player evaluation so i spend more of my time thinking about what are the market inefficiencies in my league where can i exploit them by making trades and kind of getting in and out at the right time of players and that's how you ultimately build dynasties i was laughing there because in my wide receiver video um i fell beholden to the analytics around garrett wilson mm -hmm. and coming in with a clean slate i put him as my number eight wide receiver um, okay because as you said those like you know metrics were like i was shocked i thought he would be in my top three coming in and when i looked at those metrics i was like holy crap like this is scary man like this is, is yeah. exactly what the analytics community when you look at the historical context players with those metrics are you know they don't they don't have a fantastic hit rate mm -hmm. but that narrative and and yeah i don't call it narrative i call it context uh for me i just that, love the word narrative so i i think we, yeah. we should keep it but yeah go ahead what, what i fear about the word narrative is that if you say narrative it feels kind of like a story that people just believe uh because it's told to them mm -hmm. versus context is like in my mind when you tell someone what something is and you also give them facts alongside it to help sure. them understand whether something is as good as good as it seems or whether it's worse but nonetheless that's all semantic um i totally hear you about like you know making sure that you have that extra information beyond the one data point or beyond you know the the trend in given one dimension like bmi for instance that's one part of the story that lets you build the entire context or narrative around that player. Uh, I think that's a really good call out. Yeah. And with, I know we're talking running backs today, but with like Garrett Wilson coming into the college season, he was my wide receiver one. Um, and 
you know, what I said on TLG before the season is like, I want to see him take a step forward in terms of market share of receiving yards. I want to see him take a step forward in terms of yards per team pass attempt. And he didn't necessarily do that, right? So I'm having to backtrack a little bit on that in my process, but also recognizing that, you know, Jackson Smith and Jigba star kind of rising at the end of the year and Olave still being a solid prospect, you know, I'm kind of forgiving him a little bit. Um, So, yeah. So it sounds like you are not really on one side of the film versus analytics train. Um, I know that generally, like, you know, when I brought folks onto the show, um, they mentioned that they take everything into consideration. But, you know, like uh, um, uh, DF Bean Counter, Drew Osinchuk, um, when yeah. we had him on the show about a year ago, he told us, like, yeah, I, I take into account um, some film things, but, like, I really, really lean into uh, trying to get everything down to a numeric formula. Other yeah. guys that we've had on the show, they say, well, we take into consideration a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I find your positioning to be really interesting because you're saying I'm a data guy, but I'm probably like indexing a lot less on data than, um, you know, a lot of other guys who like view themselves as data guys. Right. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think I want to find a handful of data points that I think are predictive of success in the NFL, whether that is for current NFL players or for prospects, right? And I use data guys like Drew, like um, like Peter Howard, right? Like Cooper Adams. I, I use their insights in order to find what those metrics are. And mm-hmm. then I also, I, I feel like as a, like a humanities PhD, my primary practice is citation, right? So I try to gather all of the information I have from all of the really smart people around me and come up with what I feel like is a a totalizing or, you know, complete picture of a player from my perspective. Right. Um, and I think where maybe I add to the, uh, well, I think maybe where I add to the whole process is that I'm, I'm able to conglomerate those things, right? And construct, you know, a cohesive argument about why I think a player should be ranked higher, should be ranked lower. You should take this player earlier in your rookie draft or later, right? So uh, I'm, I'm very deferential. I try to like conglomerate as much information as I can um, and, then, and then build an argument from there. So I think you're right. I, I wouldn't call myself one or the other. I, I don't think I'm like... I don't think I'm enough of an expert in either to really call myself one or the other, but I am good at bringing information together and coming up with um, a strategy that I think has been successful in my leagues. I love to hear that. My question to you is like, what are the metrics that you do care the most about? Sure. Yeah. Um, So I mean, with running backs today, which we're talking about, I I tend to lean kind of primarily on draft capital and athleticism, right? So speed score and agility score. Um, College target share is a really important number um, for running back prospects, right? Because we want to see running backs who have a three down skill set in the NFL. And also specifically at this point in the process of, uh, excuse me, especially at this point in the 
process of running back prospecting here in February, I like to look at Lance Zerline's uh, NFL.com grades because I think David Zach uh, from Dynasty Nerds has shown that his grades have been equally predictive of success as draft capital, right? So right now in February, when we don't have draft capital and we're still trying to gain an edge on our league mates, um, those scores are pretty important to me. Um, another metric for running backs that I've kind of been incorporating into my process recently is um, Noah Hills at Noah Moore Parties on Twitter, uh, kind of the lead analyst for Breakout Finder. He's really good at creating efficiency metrics for running back prospects. And one of his newest ones is called Box Adjusted Efficiency Rating, um, which essentially looks at how running backs are performing in relationship to both their teammates and the amount of defenders in the box, right? Because he's kind of coming in with the assumption that good running backs perform well, especially in comparison to their teammates. And they do it um, kind of, and also that numbers of defenders in the box has an effect on that performance, right? Um, so that's kind of been a new input into my overall process that I think we'll talk about a little bit later as we get into the prospects themselves. Um, so yeah, for running backs that, I mean, for, uh, receivers, you know, market share, dominator rating, breakout age, right? There's kind of a set of uh, metrics that uh, I think are pretty tried and true. I, I think the, the general consensus is that wide receiver analytics are kind of the best that we have in terms yep. of predicting NFL success. Um, so yeah, I just kind of I, I followed the party line there. Dude, that sounds really cool. I had not heard of this box adjusted. What was it? Box adjusted... Yeah, it's called box adjusted efficiency rating, and he he very uh, cleverly uh, hyphenates it as Bay rating, B A E. So yeah, he's like also that. got yards per carry plus, which is is really honing in on how uh, running back is performing in relation to their teammates. He also does one called chunk rate, right? So that measures big plays. Um, so I really like reading his work at, at Breakout Finder in terms of uh, running back prospecting. What I like about this statistic is that, you know, a lot of the times when folks dismiss analytics um, from the film side, they're saying, well, you know, not every yard is equal. Not sure. every catch is equal, right? If, if I get a yard with eight defenders in the box versus six, um, that one yard might be more impressive. Or maybe even it's, you know, to the extent of what side of the ball are they lined up in and where am I running? Uh, right. This reminds me a lot of two different metrics um, that I uh, you know, have evaluated or, uh, and taken a look at. Uh, the first um, is a little bit more of an implicit metric, backfield dominator rating. Mm. Um, so this one is taking a look at in your own backfield, you can catch the implicit um, you know, importance of a player by seeing how much that offense gives that player the ball in the backfield. So yeah. for that reason, you know, guys like Isaiah Spiller, while the film guys tell me he's really awesome, his backfield dominator rating is under 50%. So right. if you have under 50% of your own backfield snaps, that, you know, is a signal to at least acknowledge. Sure. And then the, the other one that I like to use is rush yards over uh, expected, which you've For probably sure. heard of, um, which was introduced through the NFL Big Data Bowl. And I thought that was a really fascinating one because that one is another way to slice up the data to take into account where the running backs are running, what acceleration they're generating, what the defenders are, and what the expected number of yards they're supposed to get, given the movements in the orientations of all of the players. Um, so I think that this Bay rating 
and rush yards over expected put together could tell you a really, really comprehensive story about these players. Um, and I'm definitely going to incorporate that in my analysis now. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, sure. There's also, you know, Graham Barfield's yards created metric, right? I, I really like rushing yards over expectation, the way that that metric, you know, uses AI and uses all these different technologies in order to kind of make our evaluation smarter. So I also like rushing yards over expectation as well. It's kind of a big reason why I'm low-key fading Najee Harris in my own dynasty ranks uh, because he does not chart very well in those kind of yards created or yards over expectation metrics. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, there's 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 so many different metrics that you could incorporate into your process um, that it's it's almost overwhelming, but like in a good way, you know. In a side that I have here that uh, just kind of popped into my head is that. Um, I also did not really like Najee as a prospect um, comparative to the other running backs. Like Javante's always been my running back one mm -hmm. uh, for uh, last year's class. But the the number one metric that like I think it matters in the NFL that doesn't really matter in college as much is volume. Because yeah. Najee, for instance, he might not be the most efficient, but damn, if they're going to run him 20 times and they're going to throw to him like 8 to 12 times a game, like it doesn't really matter if he's efficient because he's just going to keep eating and eating and eating. True. So he's almost guaranteed to have a touchdown and 80 yards and what whatever. Um, and, you know, while we're looking at draft prospects, like we really can't evaluate what volume will necessarily be like. But I think that that is something that, you know, is... Uh, it's interesting to reflect back to previous classes and see how that volume metric has impacted how we perceive those players, um, draft class over draft class. Right. Yeah. And that's why draft capital is so important because mm -hmm. that's going to be the most predictive of volume for us and why right now I'm going to kind of latch on to Lance Zerline scores, right? Because those, yeah. it's going to give us a little bit more of an idea of where these guys are going to get drafted. So we've mentioned Lanzerline scores a couple of times now, um, and now that we've given the audience a lot of context around who you are and like what uh, you know we want to look at when we're looking at these running back prospects, I think it'll be helpful to bring up Lanzerline's uh, scoreboard um, and how he scales players. So putting them up on the screen right now, uh, you can see that uh, Lanzerline's scale goes from kind of zero to eight. And each of the fine-grained ranges from 8 to 7.5, 7 7.5 to 7.3, 7.1 to 7.0, dot, 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 you can see what these fine-grained ranges um, are uh, Lance's projections for each of these players. So it's nearly impossible to get a player to have an 8.0 rating. 8.0 in this system means the perfect prospect. Um, but I think that what we're trying to do in this player evaluation in general is evaluate who falls where in the 7 to 5.5 range. 7 means, you know, somewhere from a Pro Bowl talent to a quality one year one starter all the way down to like a backup, right? And that's really the range of where most of these players lie. If you take a look at what uh, his track record is, um, as you mentioned, people rely on his grades because generally speaking, his grades have been really, really accurate. Uh, again, putting these guys on the screen, we've seen that, you know, his top rated prospect was Saquon Barkley, which people still say, you know, even though he hasn't produced the same as we would expect uh you know of the highest rated prospect on here um he is the physical specimen and he does have those uh player qualities he just plays yeah. for the giants uh right. you got guys like zeke you got fournette you know cook etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so 
I think that just giving you this context, if you don't use his grades uh, right now, you definitely should be considering them, uh, incorporating them into your process because he's really, really accurate uh, in considering you know the film components of what a player brings to the field. Right, and yeah, I mean, if you look at that scale, uh, and you compare it to the grades that are available for the 2022 class, you're gonna see overall that, you know, not only kind of in the dynasty space, but in the NFL draft space, this is seen as a weaker running back class, right? Um, so, you know, last year you had Travis Etienne in the 6.7 range, right? And Javante Williams, I believe, was in the 6.5 range. And this year, the highest rated prospect that we've gotten the score of so far is Kenneth Walker at a 6.35, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think while there are good dynasty assets in this class, uh, I think we have to go into the overall evaluation, understanding that this is a little bit closer to the 2019 class with Josh Jacobs and David Montgomery and Miles Sanders than it is to 2021 or, or especially 2020, which was kind of an amazing class. Yeah, I think that we've been spoiled in the last two years uh, in terms of quarterbacks and running backs and wide receivers, tight ends, uh, really just Kyle Pitts. But like, um, if you look at all of these guys, like that is a diamond like class of players like you have a much higher chance of hitting like uh, a pro bowler or uh, you know a potential hall of famer with all of those players and people forget that in 2019 we had you know kyler murray as as the you know main quarterback but everyone else after that was kind of eh. you know same thing with yeah. the running back same things with the wide receivers um and 2019 receivers were were pretty good in hindsight um but definitely the running backs tight ends and quarterbacks were we're on the eh side of the equation, that's for sure. I definitely think that when you take a look at guys like DK, um, who are in that class, or AJ Brown, I mean, I personally am a little bit lower on both of those guys than the mm -hmm. community, but that's because I would much rather take a lot of the 2020 or 2021 guys uh, okay. over those two guys, um, given their production, given their opportunity. Anyway, kind of we're beating around the bush. Everyone here wants to know what your rankings are uh, for this running back class. So why don't you kind of tell us how you've looked at these guys and where they stack for you? Sure. Um, you know, I think most everybody has a top three that's going to be relatively similar. And that's going to be some combination of Brees Hall from uh, Iowa State, uh, Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M and Kenneth Walker from Michigan State. I have them running back one, Brees Hall, running back two, Kenneth Walker, and running back three, Isaiah Spiller. So um, after that, there's kind of a big drop off. Um, and there's a handful of guys that they have some intriguing profiles, right? Kyron Williams, Rashad White, uh, Tyler Allegier from uh, BYU. But it's, it's a pretty big cliff after that top three. And then there's a decent amount of, you know, potentially late day two, but more likely day three prospects. Um, it's, it's relatively deep there, but it's not anybody that we can be super confident in, I think. What are the gaps uh, between those top three players for you? It's really close, right? Um, I do think Brees Hall is going to remain my running back one 
through the process because I think he's going to get second round draft capital. And I don't think that's too fancy or hot takey of an opinion. I think most people have Brees Hall up there. It's just because his production profile overall is the best in this class, right? A 10.9% career college target share, which is a really great number for a guy who can kind of pound it like he can on the ground. Uh, He's 215 to 220 pounds, 6'1". So I think his size adjusted speed is going to be pretty nice. Um, He's got the Zerline grade of 6.34, which is second in this class behind Kenneth Walker, who I mentioned earlier. And I I don't think you have to make too many concessions to have Brees Hall ranked running back one. And I like that. And above that, you know, he's really good on film. He's quick, decisive runner. He's got excellent vision and contact balance. He can both kind of get around people and run through people. He's not super fast. And I don't think he's going to have elite top end speed, but he'll be fast enough. Um, you know, so I, I, Brees is going to be my running back one and Walker versus Spiller is a lot closer for me. Um, and I think I kind of depart from a lot of data focused analysts, uh, with having Kenneth Walker over Isaiah Spiller, but it is really close, right? So what, what is that difference between Kenneth Walker and Spiller for you? That's not data-based. Right. So, I mean, just kind of going over the trajectory of Kenneth Walker's career, right? He doesn't do a whole lot in his first two years at Wake Forest, but he explodes in his junior year after transferring to Michigan State. So I really liked seeing him transfer to a better program and a more competitive conference in in the Big Ten and then thrive and winning the Doak Walker Award. You know, that's that's kind of the narrative. But this is one of those situations in which I think the context of that transfer and the explosiveness that he demonstrated on film and through the kind of stats he put up in that junior year is enough to push him above Isaiah Spiller, who has a better analytic profile, but I have more questions about um, his athleticism. You know, I mean, Kenneth Walker, also an early declare like Isaiah Spiller. Um, Like I said earlier, he's tops in the class in NFL.com grades. So I think we can expect really good draft capital. Um, You know, some uh, metrics that I like, he had over 1100 of those 16 yards. They came after contact. Uh, That box adjusted efficiency rating um, that I mentioned earlier from Noah Hills, that's 146.1%, which is a really high mark. That essentially means he was you know, outperforming his teammates adjusted to defenders in the box by, you know, 146%. Um, So I just think this is a situation where those numbers are telling me that he's a better runner than Isaiah Spiller, and he could potentially be the best running back in the class, right? So where people take issue with Walker is his lack of passing work, right? But he did get 40% of running back targets at Michigan State. So they just didn't throw it to the running back at all, right? And, you know, from a efficiency standpoint, 3.64 yards per team attempt is extremely efficient. That's a 99th percentile number. So I just think he performs on those efficiency and kind of talent-based metrics in a way that I we haven't seen Isaiah Spiller do yet. So that's kind of why I have him over. But because of Isaiah Spiller's pristine kind of long-term production profile and his very early breakout as a true freshman, that makes him safer and it makes it really close for me, right? So while I kind of listed all these things of why I like Kenneth Walker more, I think there's a lot of reasons to like Isaiah Spiller. 
when I look at these prospects, um, especially before we know even NFL combine numbers, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to view the distribution of outcomes for mm-hmm. each of these players. Um, so like, for example, if you, you know, let, let, the, the most common example that people use in probability is dice, right? So normally you have a dice between, uh, you know, numbered one to six and you have an equal chance of rolling all of those. Um, but what happens if the dice is, you know, all ones except one side is six, well, that means that five out of six times, 83% of the time, you're going to roll a one, which is the lowest value. And one out of six times, you're going to get the highest value. That's the classic boom bust situation. When I'm looking at these players, I want to know, we, we don't know where these players are going to end up getting drafted. We don't right. know what schemes they're going to be in. We don't know who else is in those backfields. We don't know how long it's going to take for those players to become the bell cow, if they ever will have that opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. And so... I'm looking at the players who have one, the most diverse skill sets, and they excel at those things mm-hmm. because I know that whether they end up in Arizona or Buffalo or Pittsburgh or Cincinnati or wherever they end up, they will have you know a pretty high floor and we can expect that they'll produce to some extent. Effect- effectively, what I'm looking for is like a higher floor for a lot of these players. And if you can give me the high floor, then I'm going to look at your upside, what you could do. And so when I look at Brees Hall, you called it out perfectly. He's really good at a lot of different things. He might not have the top end speed, but when I'm looking at a player who can block, who has acceleration, who has uh, a lot of power, who has Uh, The most important thing for me is that he started his freshman year. So over the three years that he's played in college, we've seen him repeatedly do all of these things and get better. So he has a track record that we can trust when he comes into the NFL, that if he ends up in a team that mainly uses their running backs as pass blockers, like a New England type of situation, he could be successful there. If he ends up in Buffalo where, you know, the majority, like they don't have a running back <laughs> effectively. And so like if Brees Hall went there and he was going to be the bell cow, um, we know that he could fit into that role too. Versus with Kenny Walker, he might have the potential to, um, you know, be a pass catching back, but he didn't do it at Wake Forest. He didn't do it at Michigan State. So I can really only evaluate him and trust his ability to run. And Mm -hmm. he's really, really good at that. But if he's not, you know, demonstrating the ability to block or be in the pass catching game, the number of opportunities that he's going to have on the team are going to be lower too. Najee Harris wouldn't be the asset that he is today if he couldn't pass block and if he couldn't uh, catch the ball, right? And so there, his his ceiling would have been a lot lower. Um, and I think that you're exactly calling these things out when we're talking about Spiller versus Kenneth Walker, because Spiller can maybe do a lot of those things, but he hasn't shown us that he's like amazing and dominant at every single one of those things. Meanwhile, Kenny Walker, while he doesn't catch passes, we know that when he runs the ball, he is like top 10% in the country in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm, I, I'm maybe buying into the narrative or the context or whatever you want to call it, that he was just misused at wake forest. Right. And then at Michigan state, that offense simply did not throw the ball to the running back. Now I will say, you know, a lot of film people that I've listened to have raised you know, concerns about Kenneth Walker's, the naturalness of his hands, right? You know, Isaiah Spiller brings a skill set in which you can line him up, you know, 
all over the field, right? It's not just dump off passes with Isaiah Spiller. So I think, you know, it's, it's certainly fair to put that as a check and a plus mark over Kenneth Walker and Isaiah Spiller's column. It's just, I think they're going to get similar draft capital. I think they're probably both going to be in the second round. And I think Kenneth Walker has a higher ceiling as a prospect and he could develop those, um, those receiving chops, you know, within his first year or second year. But, you know, I, I'm not blaming anybody for having Isaiah Spiller ranked over him. Um, and this is going to be a situation in which not only his draft capital, but also if Isaiah Spiller comes into the combine and kind of resolves some of my concerns about his potential athleticism or his lack of athleticism, then I could see them flip-flopping, right, uh, in my own yeah. ranks. I think it's pretty telling that whether you look at the analytics guys or you look at the film guys, there seems to be a unison that Brees Hall, no matter what, is the top guy in the class. And I think what we're actually speaking to is the fact that no matter how you evaluate those players, everybody is looking for the most like expected outcome for those players. Mm -hmm. And we can feel that with Brees Hall, that's probably going to happen. And with Kenneth Walker and Isaiah Spiller, we're a little bit more contingent on the numbers that we get from the combine or the pro days or whatnot. And that's where those players are going to flip-flop. But that speaks a lot more to the completeness of Brees Hall's game uh, compared to, you know, all the other players, you know, in this draft class. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, Brees Hall, his overall profile is just the most strong, right? Um, so if we're assuming all of them are getting drafted in the second round, um, unless Brees Hall, for some reason, goes to a situation in which he's like the clear number two, right? If for some reason the Giants draft him and then don't trade away Saquon Barkley, it would be absolutely absurd. But barring that kind of almost irrational outcome, I I'm pretty sure he's going to remain my running back one throughout the process. Now, we've dug into these top three running backs pretty extensively here, and I think that this is a pretty good summary of what the debate looks like pre-combine. Um, you know, post-combine, I think that we're going to have a lot more clarity, and there's going to be much less wiggling going on in people's rankings. Um, but I'm really curious about now the bottom half of your list, the four through six guys. Yeah. Um, what brings them into your list over a lot of other guys who are kind of in the same tier? Yeah, so the next three guys on my list, it's kind of like I have a relatively set four and five for now before we get combine and before we get draft capital. And then my six is kind of between a couple of guys. So my number four guy is Kyron Williams out of Notre Dame. Uh, my number five guy is Rashad White from Arizona State. And my number six guy is Jerome Ford from Cincinnati. And you know, like I said earlier, there is a big cliff between three and four here, but with Kyron Williams, um, he's a smaller guy, about five, nine, 200 pounds, which actually from a body mass perspective, isn't all that tiny, but you know, his production's really intriguing 12% college target share, which you love to see. I mean, really, honestly, anything above like 6% is a good number for a college running back. So when you get into the double digits, uh, that's, that's really nice. Uh, Kyron Williams had 2,800 scrimmage yards over his sophomore and junior year. And he gets so much love in the film community for his pass protection ability. And that plus his production indicates, you know, the possibility of a three down skill set. He, 
he has the 6.1 NFL.com grade from Lance Zerline, and that's lower than we want to see from the RB4 in any class, but that's just kind of what we're dealing with here. So I think yeah. draft capital is going to be a big piece of the puzzle for Kyron and honestly for any anybody kind of outside of the top three. I think that Kyron Williams, you know, he does feel very much like a pass centric back, um, much like how like Dion Lewis or uh, how James White were used in New England. I can totally see him being that back that, you know, is just kind of used all over the field. And that is what breeds opportunity. I, I think you're calling out the third down back ness of these players. Um, and, you know, it's kind of crazy. I was reflecting on the fact that Adrian Peterson, for most of his career wasn't really viewed as a three down back and yet the career that he had was incredible yeah. and now it's like you've got these guys who can be three down backs just because they block and because they can catch a swing pass um when when any sort of running or any sort of quarterback uh needs an opportunity to just you know have an outlet if he's um you know every option is covered on the field um when I look at my notes about Kyron Williams, I mentioned this in my video about running backs. His spike trait is pass catching, um, but everything else is kind of, uh, it, it, it leaves some to be desired. Uh, even when he got volume at Notre Dame, I mean, my notes say that he had 11 carries every game this season, but he only eclipsed 100 yards twice. Mm -hmm. Um I don't really know what to make of what he's going to do with the ball in his hands in the NFL. That is definitely something that could be developed, but um, I really think that this just speaks to the fact that we got to the buffet 15 minutes before it's closing and Kyron Williams is kind of what you got left uh, on the table. Um, and I really hate to say that because I, I feel myself wanting to like this player. Um, yeah. I, I feel like I want him to be a lot closer to the top three than he is to the rest of the class. Um, but, you know... <sighs> I, he's a guy where I'm going to be looking at his combine stats and hoping that I see a different picture than what I'm seeing pre-combine. Right. I, I was listening to the Pretend GM podcast with uh, Alfredo Brown and Vignesh Dorswami. And, you know, when they were doing kind of their scouting grade of Kyron Williams, they essentially said like, yeah, he's good at pass protection. You know, he's a good receiver and he's a decent runner. He's pretty shifty. But, you know, a lot of people will... Uh, comp him, you know, on the ceiling end to guys like Giovanni Bernard, or um, I mean, ultimate ceiling would be like Austin Eckler and uh, Naheem Hines. But the thing is, like, I don't think Kyron Williams has the speed of any of those guys, right? So like you said, you know, if he shows that he does have that speed at the combine and his, you know, size adjusted speed score is, you know, over a hundred, which is kind of what we want to see, then maybe he can reach that ceiling. But I think, you know, when you talk about range of outcomes, when you talk about rolling that dice, uh, I think you got to err a little bit more conservative with his ultimate kind of productivity in the NFL. Yeah, Zierlein's uh, player comp for Kyron Williams is Dion Lewis, which I I really feel like Dion Lewis feels like that is his is Kyron Williams ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really feel like uh, like an expected outcome for this player. But if you told me that he developed his game enough where he is a reliable pass catching back for a pass heavy team, um, 
I think that that would be a pretty good outcome given all of his skill sets. Right. Especially if he's able to sneak into the third round, right? Um, I think we'll probably still want to draft him in the second round of our rookie drafts, even if he falls to early day three. Um, but if he, he sneaks in to the third round, he's probably going to end up being a late first in Superflex rookie drafts. And I'm probably going to be fading at that price. I think, uh, I think I'm just going to probably err toward a receiver or a quarterback there. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I want to go to your number five. I have not heard anyone have, I think you said Rashad white, yeah. uh, as your number five, why is he on your list? Yeah, he's he's a riser. So there there are people that are kind of moving him up there. I think um I think uh at Dino Game Theory Jax Falcone, he either has him at 4 or 5. So he's kind of a riser and the reason he is is cuz he's got some really intriguing you know, components to his profile. But draft capital I think is going to tell a lot of the story with him. So Rashad White uh, he's kind of a fifth year senior at um, Arizona State, and that's because he was a Juco guy, right? He's already 23 years old. He had a late breakout, but the breakout itself in 2021 was pretty sweet at Arizona State. So once he got on the field, he dominated. Um, he had like a 16% target share in 2021, I believe. I know it's an 18.5% career college target share. So that is an elite number, right? Um, over 1,400 scrimmage yards in that super senior year lots of big plays really good in efficiency in relationship to his teammates and you know Arizona State they bring in some good running back prospects so it's not like he's just he's dunking on really bad you know two and one star recruits I, I think his reported good performance at the senior bowl also might earn him some money at the draft which would make him more valuable in dynasty right so he like the knock on him is that he's not necessarily the most natural of runners right and obviously the late breakout what was really nice though he was listed on arizona state's website as 62210 um which made him extremely skinny but he checked in at the senior bowl at six foot 210 so the frame isn't as slight as we might have thought and that's a good thing so you know he's got upside in his profile and it's mainly captured by that 18.5 percent college target share but you know again we kind of have to be measured and conservative here because he's such a late breakout and also his lance zerline grade of 5.64 um is is not that great I think when players break out so late, they automatically go on my like radar of like, uh, oh no, be careful. Like this guy is kind of getting overhyped because he is performing really well because he's been in college for five freaking years. Um, he's not starting uh, his freshman year like Bruce right. Hall at seven, sometimes 17 years old, right. right? So this guy is, you're saying, closer to 23. And that's not to say that he won't be successful in the NFL. But I'm curious, like, does that not raise red flags for you that perhaps he's, you know, given his entire trajectory, um, he might still be a serviceable player in the NFL, but he broke out at 23 when he is more likely to be three or four years older than the rest of the competition that he's playing against. Yeah, I don't, first off, I don't think we should expect him to be more than a complimentary back at the next level, even if he has some upside in his profile. But yeah, I mean, you know, him coming into the NFL at 23 
like Najee did, right? It essentially means that once he enters the NFL, he's only got a year or two before he's a declining asset, right? Because it's not just about, um, you know, market sentiment in your dynasty leagues. Once running backs hit that 25, 26, they start to lose value, but it's also like their, their production declines pretty neatly at that point as well, right? So um, both in terms of actual production and in terms of market sentiment, uh, you want to get a guy that's coming into the NFL at 20, 21, you know, 22, 23, it starts to, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of walking into an already declining asset. So it's definitely, it raises a red flag, but him being my running back five, I think is, is more, you know, a, a testament to the weakness of the class than it is, um, than it is just like, I love Rashad White, right? Yeah, and that makes me feel really sad because when I look at my sleeper list of players, I'm like, damn, he didn't crack my sleeper list. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, I mean, just to give you context, like, Brian Robinson is the Power 5 conference version of Rashad White. Yeah. And I'm saying that because, like, we all know the, the stereotype around the Pac-12. Um, Brian Robinson has been playing at Alabama for, like, five years. Uh, and so, you know, this year with everyone gone, uh, Brian Robinson has had, you know, a lot of uh, – highlight moments right again being much older than the rest of the competition and for what it's worth like he is a tremendous pass blocker i think that he just given the alabama reputation given the fact that he was on the national stage he will get some opportunities in the nfl but these kinds of players make me really nervous because uh they get kind of how do i want to put this uh they get found out <laughs> when they yeah. go to the nfl um and so yeah, I, I wish that there were some better options here, um, you know, in, in the running back class. But yeah. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you talked about Brian Robinson being an Alabama guy. And my running back six is Jerome Ford, who used to be an Alabama guy, but he transferred mm -hmm. to Cincinnati because he wanted to get an opportunity to shine. And he did. Right. So that's kind of part of also the context that we may need to investigate uh, i kind of talked about it with garrett wilson and uh the receivers at ohio state before but it's a tough life being a running back at alabama you know they get really high recruits and they all are competing for playing time right so and i i, I liked seeing jerome ford kind of bet on himself and transfer to cincinnati and it, and it kind of worked out for him yeah. So why don't you talk to me a little bit more about what Jerome Ford does as a player that makes you um, have him, you know, at the tail end of your list? Right. So he he transferred to Cincinnati. Right. And and in that first year he was there, he was kind of sitting behind Jared Dokes, um, which, you know, that's part of the bad part of his profile is like he couldn't transfer and immediately beat out Jared Dokes. But last year, uh, when Cincinnati kind of had a really good season, he compiled 1300 yards uh, rushing as well as 20 receptions and 20 total touchdowns. Um, his 6.2% career college target share isn't great, but I think in his final year at Cincinnati, he showed that he could catch the ball and i think he's extremely fast like he might be the fastest running back in this class he might run sub 44 at 215 220 and i think he's one of those backs 
that might fall into value territory in rookie drafts. Mm -hmm. So like late third round, um, you know, Ray GQ comped him to Elijah Mitchell, essentially. And when Ray GQ kind of flags flyer running backs in the third round of your rookie draft, I, I listen because he was all over Elijah Mitchell. He was all over James Robinson. So yeah, I just, I, I, I think he's a good fast player that has a lot of negatives in his profile, but I think if he gets, you know, decent, you know, day three capital, uh, then he's somebody that I'm going to be looking to draft in the third round of my rookie drafts. And for people who don't play with Tarek, uh, Elijah Mitchell is his running back zero. I, I bet based on all of the trade offers that I get from you, Elijah <laughs> Mitchell is at the very, very top of your list. Hey, I, I like Elijah Mitchell. I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of buying into the Kyle Sh Shenanahanigans um, with him because every time he was on the field, Shanahan just fed him. But uh, yeah, I, where I have him, I've admittedly been trying to trade him away because I, I'm just worried about that situation falling apart but in terms of if you got Elijah Mitchell in the third round or the fourth round of your rookie drafts or the 18th round of a startup I mean that's pure profit right yeah that makes a lot of sense Jerome Ford is someone who if you go to the comment section of my running back video people are like how the hell could you not include him even in your honorable mention section <laughs> uh I mean looking back at it I made that video back in like Thanksgiving time I think and uh I had CJ Verdell on mm -hmm. my list okay and to think that like now when i'm looking at you know my list Brees hall kenny walker isaiah spiller kyron williams james cook from georgia brian robinson hassan haskins jerome ford um and then i had you know uh tyler Beatty. people have been talking about tyler uh Alaguerre from right. byu um like he's just not there anymore um and i think that you know it this is probably that draft where, you know, for those of you who play Dynasty, the first three guys, Brees Hall, Kenny Walker, and Isaiah Spiller, are probably going to end up going in the first round, um, and, and that's fine. That's probably expected. Um, I actually wouldn't be surprised if all three of them went in the top five uh, of your rookie drafts, but everybody else, I see them as like back end second round onwards types of players, which means that if you're one of those players who traded away all your first round picks and now you're kind of nickel and diming and you've got all these seconds, all these thirds, all these fourths, you might be in goldmine territory because if you can go and throw a bunch of flyers on all of these guys, um, again, it's about range of outcomes. All of these guys, if you're having your drafts before the NFL draft, um, they are guys who can really pop in any given situation. I mean, if one of these guys goes to San Francisco, goodbye to Elijah Mitchell, perhaps, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think on on uh, my podcast at one point, I kind of made the joke when we were talking about Elijah Mitchell, just watch Kyle Shanahan draft Kyron Williams in the fourth round <laughs> and we all, you know, do this whole dance again. But yeah, I mean, I think a good rule of thumb when you're in a rookie draft for dynasty is once you get to that third round if you're choosing between a dart throw receiver right and a potential handcuff running back you take the potential handcuff running back every single time right i mean from a, a roster construction standpoint those guys will return value on your roster at a much higher hit rate, right? Just because running backs get hurt all the time, right? A lot of guys who get drafted get an opportunity at some point. And it's not just about 
that opportunity putting points in your lineup. It's about that opportunity representing an, uh, a further opportunity for you to cash in on a third round rookie pick that you spent. Maybe you can get a second or a first round rookie pick back in a future draft, right? So I always encourage you know, draft the Jerome Fords in the third round, draft the Keontae Ingrams in the third or fourth round and a deeper guy on the running back list instead of the really deeper wide receivers, right? If you drafted Amir Smith-Marset in the third round of last year's rookie draft or you drafted Jalen Darden or something like that, you know, they're not doing anything for you, right? But at least if you drafted a potential handcuff running back, you've got, I think you've got a higher hit rate. Yeah, that it reminds me of my very first uh, rookie draft, like the first one that I ever, ever did. Um, one of the guys that I played with, he dra he drafted um, Antonio Gibson at the end of the second round. Yeah, and I was just like, who who is this guy? Like, why why are we uh, drafting him over Jacob Eason or Jalen Hurts or uh, you know just quarterbacks that were on the board? And and lo and behold, that handcuff became the starter. Right. Um, and, and now is what a, probably a top 12, uh, running back for, um, sure. for yeah. anybody playing fantasy, whether it's redraft or dynasty. Um, so I, I like your recommendation draft handcuffs. Just don't draft your own handcuffs. Right. Yeah. I mean, where the asymmetric upside is to is, is like to draft handcuffs from other teams. I mean, I do think like if you have an opportunity to get your own handcuff on your team for a reasonable price, it's especially if you're kind of in week eight and you're angling toward a playoff run, then it's completely uh, fine. But yeah, I think chase asymmetric upside, right? So draft handcuffs from other teams and, and try to put all that, all that points uh, in your lineup and against your league mates. Uh, a funny little story about handcuffs. Uh, when Tarek and I were in the uh, initial startup draft uh, of the breakout league, the inaugural breakout league, um, we, you know, saw J.K. Dobbins go in. I think it was like the sec late second or early third round. Um, and you know, I, I was really high on J.K. Dobbins. I still am really high on J.K. Dobbins. But that was the weekend, or I think we were like a couple of rounds in, yeah. and uh, that was the weekend where. J jk dobbins tore um his acl unfortunately and we were all we all collectively groaned because we just liked the guy so much yeah um and so the the moment the news came out the guy who was on the clock drafted gus edwards yeah and so we were like damn like damn if that was me right if only i could have drafted gus edwards um or if i had done that like just around before and then like not even around passes and then gus edwards is out for the insane. season with the whatever torn acl or whatever and so at that point everyone kind of just gave up on uh the ravens backfield and i picked up tyson williams uh you know just on the waiver wire for like um i don't know a dollar or something like that and i managed to trade him for a second round pick um and in other leagues i've seen him traded you know tyson williams in a second for a first or some you know some sort of combination like that and i think that just really speaks to the volatility of uh the running back position if you can get yourself aces or, or players that can eventually develop into aces you're just really if you're in you know someone who invests in the market you're diversifying your portfolio and it doesn't really matter if nine out of ten of your assets don't uh, in, you know, increase in value, appreciate. If the one multiplies by a thousand percent, that's the one that is making the impact on your portfolio, and then you cash out. Yeah. So, 
All of this just speaks to how roster management strategy goes. All of this speaks to how you might want to evaluate uh, your own roster construction, your draft strategy. It's not always about the best player available, but what that player might end up being uh, worth six months down the line to a year. Right. Yeah. And shout out to the guys who drafted Gus Edwards in that draft. Those were that was John and Trey, who are <laughs> uh, my co-hosts on the long game, along with my co-manager, Mitch. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was actually just thinking about that draft in this conversation because we picked uh, Elijah Mitchell in the same round as the news that San Francisco cut Wayne Gallman. Right. Uh, cause it was like Wayne Gallman was going to be the, the backup to Trey Sermon potentially. Um, so yeah, like there's so many ways that a deep round, deep startup or third round rookie and your rookie drafts can return like real material value onto your, uh, dynasty team. And, you know, that's why, even though we've said multiple times, right. Uh, this is a weak running back class, right? There's really a top three guys who are pretty good. And then there's a bunch of other guys, those bunch of other guys like Rashad white, like Jerome Ford, like Tyler Allegier, they could be those guys, even if they're drafted in the sixth round, they could be those guys that end up turning into a second or a first round rookie pick in 2023 or 2024, right? So it's worth taking the stab and it's worth doing these evaluations, even if we're kind of low on the class as a whole. All right. Well, this has been a really fun hour of talking running backs with you, philosophy, uh, uh, context versus uh, narrative. There's a lot of good content that we have here, and I really thank you for coming onto the show. Uh, where can all of our viewers find you in your awesome, awesome analysis? Yeah, well, obviously, man, thank you for having me. I, I've been, uh, I was a fan of the breakout before we started playing together. So it's a really uh, fun opportunity to get in here and talk dynasty with you. But um, you can find me on Twitter at angry Tarek, T-A-R-E-K. Um, you can find the long game dynasty podcast on Twitter at TLG underscore dynasty. And we'll share links, uh, to the pod from there. We release every Thursday morning. Um, so I, I think we've been doing the, the show for 46 weeks and we've done 44 episodes. So we're pretty consistent about Thursday morning, uh, every week. Right now, we are finishing up a series kind of reviewing the 2021 rookies, and then we're about to start a series uh, reviewing or kind of previewing the 2022 rookies. So I really appreciate you kind of helping me get a jump on the running backs uh, for our, our podcast series. But um, yeah, so yeah, check us out. Yeah, man. If you like the content on the breakout, I think that you're going to like the long game a lot. Um, we talk about a lot of similar topics and the analysis that these guys do on TLG is just fantastic. It was a reason that I had to just join them, uh, you know, in a dynasty league, because that's where you really test the metal of your own analysis and your own game theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got we got second place in the breakout league and it's inaugural year. So we'll, we will be angling for the championship next year. But yeah. <laughs> And they got a roster to do it. So I'm excited to see what you guys do. Yeah, Thank you, Tarek. It. And uh, if you haven't liked or subscribed this to this video or to our channel, make sure to do so below. Thanks for watching. We're going to hit that music. See you next time. <laughs>